All right, well, we're going to continue our series through the book of, of Malachi, uh, the last book in the Old Testament. Um, but first, let's do our little Old Testament history review together. This could be the last time. We might do it one more time during this series, a couple, couple more messages. So let's just do our best today. And remember, the idea is to uh, try to fill in the blanks out loud with me and uh, do the hand signals if you can. Uh, if you're new today, uh, feel free to just um, sit back and make fun of the rest of us. All right, here we go. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell us about creation. Chapter 3, the temptation and fall of Adam and Eve. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel, the first murder, unfortunately. Chapter 5 is genealogies. Chapter 6, 7, 8, Noah and the flood. Chapter 9, Noah after the flood, rainbow. Chapter 10 again, genealogies, a little boring. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Chapter 12, the call of Abraham. Very good. One day God saw the faith of Abraham and spoke to him. God said, go into a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great and mighty nation, and I will make your name great, and I will bless you to be a blessing to the nations. So Abraham, remember that one? packed his bags, and he and his family went up around the Fertile Crescent, and they came up to a town called Haran, which was barren. So Abraham wondered, what am I doing here? Let's do that one again. So Abraham wondered, what am I doing here? But it wasn't time for him to get to where God was leading him yet, so God had him wait 30 years until Abraham's father, Terah, died. Finally, they moved into the promised land. But Abraham and his wife Sarah had a problem because 30 more years had passed and they still hadn't had any children. And now they're getting very old. Finally, God kept his promise and gave a son to Abraham and Sarah who they named Isaac. Isaac was the chosen son. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Esau was not chosen, but Jacob was chosen by God. Later, Jacob was renamed Israel. So Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, had how many sons? Twelve sons, ten fingers, two earlobes. The second youngest son, his name was Joseph. Joseph seemed to have a special relationship with God and with his father, so the other sons didn't like him very much. His brothers threw him into a pit, sold him into bondage, and sent him down to Egypt, where he lived for 30 years. Joseph eventually became Pharaoh's powerful right-hand man. After 30 years, there was a famine in the land, and the whole family moved down to Egypt for another 30 years where they lived in peace and prosperity. After that, Pharaoh died, and uh, then Joseph died. So there was a new Pharaoh who didn't like Joseph's family, which had become very large by this time, so he put them all into bondage for 400 years. After 400 years, the Egyptians had become really oppressive, and the people began to cry out to God, saying, God, get us out of this mess. I just think we need to say that together right about now. Let's do that again. They began to cry out to God, saying, God, get us out of this mess. So God called a man named Moses and told him to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses did what God asked, but Pharaoh said, no go. So God began to show his power, and through Moses, he unleashed how many plagues? Ten plagues on the people of Egypt until finally Pharaoh couldn't take any more. And the last time Moses said, let my people go, Pharaoh said, okay. So Moses 
gathered the people and led, the, and led them through the Red Sea and on up to Mount Sinai, where God gave them the Ten Commandments. Moses later sent how many spies? Twelve spies who were also family leaders into the land that God had promised to see what enemies they might have to face. This was the same land that God had given to Abraham before his descendants moved down to Egypt to escape the famine. How many leaders, well, 10 leaders came back and said what? No go. go. But two leaders said, let's go. Unfortunately, the people listened to the 10 leaders and as a group, they said, no go. So God said, because you have no faith and you've disobeyed me, you are going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until everyone 20 and over dies. So that's what happened. When the time was up, Moses brought them to a place called Mount Nebo, where Moses died and a new leader was selected. We'll call him General Joshua. He just happened to be one of those original two leaders who had said, let's go. Joshua led the people through the Jordan River and they divided up the the promised land between the 12 tribes. Let's try those three again. Joshua led the people through the Jordan River, and they divided up the promised land between the 12 tribes. After Joshua died, there were seven social, economical, and spiritual ups and downs. This happened under the leadership of the judges, like a gavel, for a period of 400 years. But after 400 years, the people said, forget the judges. God, give us a king. The first king was? Do you realize how much better you're doing now than when we started this? This is encouraging. The first king was Saul. The second king was? And the third king was? Solomon. They ruled a united kingdom. After Solomon, though, the kingdom was divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was called? Israel. And the southern kingdom was called? Judah. But keep in mind that all of it together was sometimes still called Israel. The capital of the northern kingdom was? Samaria used to be one person, now it's like eight. (laughs) The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria, Samaria. And the capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. Jerusalem. There were how many tribes in the north? And how many tribes in the south? Two. Two. After Solomon, there were 19 consecutive kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, and there were 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Of those kings, there were how many good kings in the north? Zero. Zero. And there were how many good kings in the south? We'll say eight. In 722 B.C., King, anybody? Woo, Shalmaneser. We haven't been doing that as a blank. I just thought I'd give it a shout today. Gold star. Was that you, Wendy? No. Somebody gets a gold star. Oh, it's Connor. That didn't count. He's my son. That didn't count. 722 B.C., somebody else got it? 722 B.C., King Shalmaneser V came down from... Assyria and defeated the northern kingdom Israel. They took the ten tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. Let's do that one more time. He took the ten tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. More than a hundred years later, in 605 BC, King Oh, there we go. Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came over to Judah, conquered them, and took many of the people back to Babylon for 70 years. 70 years later, Babylon had been conquered by the Persians, and the Persian king sent how many leaders back? Three leaders back to help uh, build back Jerusalem. Where they, and here's what they did. They rebuilt the temple. temple. Who was that? Zerubbabel. They reestablished communication with God. Who was that? 
Ezra, and they rebuilt the wall, Nehemiah. The last Old Testament prophet to speak was Malachi, and he shared his word from the Lord after the wall had been rebuilt. After that, there were 400 years of silence from God until John the Baptist burst on the scene shouting about Jesus Christ, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Great job. He covered the whole Old Testament. You guys are getting better and better at this. Good deal. It is said that the key to learning is review. And so now that we've reviewed our walk through the Old Testament, I'm also going to take a moment to review Malachi as we uh, near the end of the series. Let me first explain to anyone that may be new that I typically preach in series, and uh, often we walk through an entire book of the Bible, or at least a large section of a book. So as you can see there in your listening guide, today we arrive at part nine of our current series through Malachi, which as we have discussed is mostly one long quotation from God. We believe all of the Bible is inspired and inerrant, but there is certain added, there's a certain added punch when we know that we are reading a direct quotation of the words of God, such as what we mostly have in the book of Malachi. This is the reason I titled the series, God Says. So what has God said so far in a nutshell? First, God said, remember my love. Remember that one? It's where it all began. God starts with love in this challenging book. He says, remember, I have loved you. The love of God is our greatest motivator. Next, we heard God say, rectify your worship. How we love God back says a lot about our hearts. Everything God wants to do in our lives starts at the point of our worship relationship with Him. This is an area where we often settle for so little, but we should all be making sure our worship is real and relevant. Empty worship is offensive to God. We spent two messages covering these verses. Next, God said, repent of ungodly leadership. All of us lead somebody somewhere. As followers of Christ, we need to make sure our leadership points in His direction. People are following you. Are you leading them toward God or further away from Him? That took us to chapter 2, verse 10 of Malachi, where God very clearly said, remain faithful in your marriages. We spent two weeks grappling with what God's Word says about divorce and how the marriages of God's people are so very representative of their relationships with Him. In our study, we were not left to wonder how God feels about divorce. In verse 16 of chapter 10, God actually says, I hate divorce. After that really fun time, God said, restore my justice. Restore my justice. I explained that God expects us to be agents of His justice, bringing His kingdom down to earth by the way we live the way we speak, and the way we serve others. We talked about the difference between so-called social justice, which generally is not just, and God's justice, or what I call biblical justice. We understood that bringing the justice of God down to earth is part of what it means to follow Jesus. Many of us were convicted that we need to do more as ambassadors of Christ in a lost world. That brings us to the text we covered last week, where God said, return to me. As I've explained throughout the series, these words are also a summary statement for the whole book. The main point God has been driving toward throughout Malachi is this, return to me and I will return to you. This is the pinnacle, the climax, the golden section, if you remember me talking about that, of this book. This is the message God wants us to hear. Interestingly, after God says to return, the people ask, how shall we return? And the very first thing God addresses is 
their unfaithfulness in tithing. God says the first way people need to return to Him is to give more money. That's what God says. You can see this for yourself starting in chapter 3 verse 8 where God calls them out for not giving the full 10% or tithe. And in fact, he says they are stealing from him by not giving it. Much to the chagrin of this modern church taboo, the first thing God says needs to change if people want to return to him has to do with finances. And so last week I spent a good amount of time explaining that the tithe is, is not optional for those who are the people of God and that in fact this is a perfect beginning point for revival because our obedience in this area says a lot about God's position in our lives. If you missed that and you're just dying to hear more, um, you can uh, watch the video on YouTube or Facebook. By the way, the link uh, uh, to the video of our most recent sermon is always posted on the homepage of our website, usually by Tuesday or Wednesday. The second area God addresses in terms of how we need to return to Him has to do with our mouths and what we say. God says, stop speaking against me. We covered that admonition from verses 13 through 15 last week, and some of us were surprised to realize that maybe we do actually speak against God, particularly in our constant gripes about the state of the world, which is actually in His hands. Now, I said last week that it was only half of a sermon, and that I would continue that sermon this week, but I have since decided these next verses actually turn a corner, so today's message will stand alone. While everything immediately prior to today's text is a direct quotation from God, and everything after it is as well, here for a moment we have Malachi inserting a bit of his own inspired narrative into what God has been saying, and so this is kind of a separate message. Here in verse 16, Malachi, whose very name means God's messenger, wants to pause long enough to make sure the readers understand that even though the story of God's people has been pretty ugly… There is, in fact, still a remnant of those who actually follow God. Malachi wants to tell us about this remnant so that we might be motivated to join them. There's one thing that is very clear in Malachi. It is the fact that God desires a close relationship with His people. He longs for us to return to Him. But first, we must realize that we need to return. And so, at least half of the words of God in this book are designed to show the people of Judah that they have strayed from the Lord. These people thought they were all good with God, but they were not. And of course, same thing happens today in His church. That's why God preserved these words for thousands of years just so we could hear them, just so that we could see that we really do need to return to Him. That at least sometimes the reason we're not blessed, and maybe sometimes the reason we feel God has abandoned us like they felt, and maybe the reason it seems there is no justice, where's the God of justice like they cried out, and the reason behind many of these negative consequences in the world around us is not that God has left us but that we have left Him. Many of the verses we've studied in Malachi are designed to convince people to return to God in one way or another. And yet, here in verse 16, finally, after all these long pronouncements by God to try to show the people well they're wrong, finally, thankfully, God says, however, 
There are a few people left who are the exception to all that I've been saying. We're going to read our text for today from chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16, Malachi. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. God says, even though I've been calling out the majority of people who claim to be mine, yet are not really mine, though they could be if they would return, I also want to mention that there is still a remnant of those who never left, those who have actually remained by my side. And by the way, I have their names written down in my book. Now, why does God want the larger audience to know this? He doesn't really need to say any of this to the remnant because they are already good to go. The previous verses are basically a call to revival. Thank you, Bevan. A call to revival. But here we see that those few who are still right with God don't need revived because they are still vived, you see. They don't need to return because they never turned away. So why, near the end of the book, does God point out to the larger audience that there are actually a few who are still on the right track? I think part of it is to give the rest of the people hope that it is actually possible to return and then stay returned. Malachi wanted the people to know that it is actually possible to stay close to God. Here at the end, almost as a last resort, God says, and by the way, to those who would say nobody can do this thing, let me tell you that there are actually some who have remained faithful to this day. God says there is always a remnant, and I suggest you join that remnant before it is too late. And if you look closely, you'll see that God defines His remnant in these verses as those who belong to Him as those who fear Him, as those who are made righteous by Him, and as those who therefore serve Him. Those could have been my four points for the sermon, but that's too easy. So that's, just, that's just like another sermon I could have done. As I've said, there's always a remnant. I find this truth incredibly encouraging. There's always a remnant. Did you know that? There is always a remnant. Elijah had to be reminded of that. Remember, he thought he was the only one left. There's always a remnant. Better yet, God's remnant is always joinable. That's what we call the gospel, the good news. God's remnant is always joinable through Christ, the Savior of the world. Attention, post-Christian or pre-Christian or pseudo-Christian or nominal Christian or cultural Christian or political Christian or any other halfway or not really and completely Christian person That is to say, attention, most of America, there is still a remnant of true followers of Jesus, and better yet, you can join us. 
The door of true repentance and faith is always open. Hallelujah. So as I preach through this word today, if you find that you are potentially outside the remnant, you don't have to stay there. You can return to God and he will return to you. But first you'll have to understand the need to do so, which means that the big question today is this, are you the remnant? Here in these verses, the remnant rallies. They've heard enough. They've listened to what God has said, and it's time to come together for action. I think they rally with a view to see others join them. It's kind of like, okay, enough of this. Who's ready to stand for God? Who's ready to stop capitulating to the culture? Who is ready to follow Yahweh, our awesome God, with full conviction? We are the remnant who is with us. There's a word for this type of movement in the church today. That word is revival. And we need it to happen right here in the outskirts of Portland. And as Dustin would say, we also need it to happen right there in the heart of Portland. Just as God was rallying the remnant in Jerusalem through Malachi, we need to see him rally the remnant in the greater Portland area. Amen? Often we can learn from what happened before. So let's see what we can learn from the remnant during the time of Malachi. Let's see who they were and what they did and how it matters to us. I'm going to draw out seven truths about God's remnant, and hopefully you'll respond in one of two ways. Hopefully, if you really are part of the remnant, you'll be encouraged by what God says about you, and you'll be ready to rally. But if you'd have to admit that you're not sure you're included, or if you know that you're not part of the remnant, maybe you'll decide to join up today. I'm going to share with you seven remnant realities. And you just got to love all the R's in this series, right? I mean, I know it's a preacher thing, but indulge me. Malachi is about revival, renewal, revitalization, remembrance, reconciliation, restoration, and repentance. Every sermon in this series starts with an R. It's just a personal victory that I just wanted to point out. (laughs) So seven quick truths today. First of all, the remnant gathers. We see this in verse 16. Malachi says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. If you think through this, you'll see that the remnant gathered. And really, they just went ahead and had themselves a little worship service. As a group, they got together. And Malachi tells us about it for a reason. In order to speak to one another about God, they had to gather, you see. And we're also told that the Lord was in their midst. God heard them. Those who feared the Lord assembled. These were the true worshipers of God. And God took time to observe. They came together in the commonality of their fear of the Lord. In unity around their reverence for Yahweh. And they spoke truth to one another while he listened. Folks, this was a worship gathering if there ever was one. But notice that they came together and they spoke to one another. And what were they saying? It would seem they encouraged each other in the faith, fanning to flame their unified fear of the Lord. They agreed with one another about the fact that God had spoken and they were intent on obeying Him together. They bonded over their strong commitment to God and He responded, this is church, folks. 
My bigger point right now, though, is that they were not alone. They were not hermits out in the woods trying to obey God's God in isolation, which is basically not possible, by the way, because many of his commands require proximity with other believers. All the one another commands can't do those alone. Beyond that, look at this gathering. They found strength in their gathering. They spoke to one another because they were together. They encouraged one another. They found courage in the fact that there were others, however few, whose fear of God was stronger than their fear of man. Listen and never forget these words. The remnant gathers. I'll say it again. The remnant does not scatter and isolate and say, there's no need to show up. The remnant gathers. So, are you part of the remnant? Could I spend an hour talking about this? You know it. Church is scattered right now because many individuals are telling themselves and each other on the internet that gathering is optional. Wrong. The very word church, ekklesia in the Greek, means assembly. The biblical term for church means gathering. Those who say you can be the church at large without gathering with a specific local church are flat out 100% dead wrong. The remnant gathers. Secondly, the remnant is remembered by God. Look at the middle part of verse 16. And the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him. A book of remembrance. Before I get into what this, work, or what this book might be, just stop and realize that there's a connection between what goes on down here among the remnant and what goes on up there in God's throne room. I mean, think about this. A tiny group of believers gathers together on a speck on the globe to encourage each other in their reverence for God, and the Lord gives attention to this gathering. Meanwhile, a parallel scene opens up in heaven, wherein a book of remembrance is written before God. This book is written before God, and it's written about what's happening in this little worship service on earth. This book is written like for God's entertainment and enjoyment while He watches it being written. It is written like as a presentation before God. Now, who does the writing? Probably an angel, but more importantly, some heavenly being writes about this remnant, not out in the hallway or something, uh, but before the throne of God while he is watching. It's worth his time, you see. This is worth God's attention. It's worth remembering to God. So a group of believers does something that's pleasing to God. He spends an afternoon or whatever being reminded of their faithfulness to Him while making sure a permanent heavenly record is written in their honor. Does this sound like a God who is disconnected from His creation? Does this sound like a God who is unreachable or uncaring or who is just letting everything run its course until it all falls apart? No, this is the personal, loving, caring God of the Bible. And this is a God who remembers his remnant. He is watching us. He knows us. He remembers us. Now, what is this book of remembrance about? 
Bible scholars debate whether or not this might be what the New Testament calls the Lamb's Book of Life, which is actually a list of those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Many of my resources tend to assume this is a different book in Malachi, but I'm not so sure. If you look at the rest of the verse, which we'll cover in a minute, we're not actually talking about deeds so much as people. In other words, the context seems to suggest that this book is a record of who more than it is a record of what. Malachi says this book is written for those who fear God, which is pretty close to the same as those who put their faith in Him, which would mean those who are saved. People have always been saved by faith, by believing God. So those who feared God unto salvation had a book written for them in which they were remembered. To me, that sounds an awful lot like the Lamb's Book of Life, where the names of those who belong to Jesus are written. Also, in the very next verse, we find that we're reading about those who belong to the Lord. So as far as I'm concerned, that seals it. This book of remembrance is very likely the book that records the names of those who will be with God for eternity. Revelation 21:27, for example, says, only those whose names are written in this book will enter heaven. The Bible is clear in many places that only the remnant will be saved. Actually, it goes with the word remnant. In, in, in that word is about, it's saved, it's, it remains, it's a remnant. It's like preserves. It remains, it's saved, it's kept. The remnant are those whose names are in God's book. Over a billion people claim to be Christian today. How many are for real? How many actually make up the true remnant? I don't know. You don't know. But God knows beyond a shadow of doubt. He knows with absolute clarity. Their names are written in His book. What about you? Is your name in that book? Are you part of the true remnant? Let's keep walking through this text to find out. Number three, the remnant fears God. Let's look again at all of verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him. For those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. There are actually three Hebrew words translated in our Bibles with the English word fear. One of those words means to dread. That word is not used here. Another of those words means to be terrified. That word is not used here. The other word translated as fear means to show deep reverence and respect, and that is the word used in our text today. Now, know this, all three Hebrew words are used, words for fear are used to describe how the general population should feel about God. However, this third word is the one used to describe how the remnant should feel about God. See, those who are not His should dread His coming. Those who are not His should be terrified of God. But those who are His remnant should never dread or feel terror when they think about God. For us, the fear of God means that we show a deep and holy reverence for Him by how we live and what we say. For us, the fear of God means we esteem or honor His name above all other names. This means that God is the most important person in our lives and nobody else comes close. This is true of the remnant. The remnant fears or reveres and esteems God. Now let's bring this into the New Testament and our understanding that salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, 
who was God in the flesh. Understand that faith really starts with the fear of God. My own salvation story involves the fear of God. I still remember when I became aware of my sin. I was not even five years old. When one night, suddenly, I became afraid of God and felt conviction over my sinful state. I still remember those emotions. Powerful. My parents were out at a meeting. They had to come home. Babysitter called them. Something is wrong with Mark. I remember it. I was four. Over a period of time, though, I came to understand that the path to peace with God was through repentant faith in Christ. And then at the age of six, I trusted in Jesus as my Savior. In that very moment, those previous feelings of terror and dread turned to reverence and peace. Do you know why many people are not receiving Christ today? Here's a hint. It is not because He isn't tolerant enough. It is not because Jesus hasn't been palatable, made palatable or popular enough or culturally acceptable enough by preachers and church people. In my estimation, the primary reason many people are not responding to Christ is because they have no fear of God. You can mark that down. People do not take the hand of the fireman when they think there is no fire. More on that next week when we cover chapter 4. But what about the remnant? How does this fear or reverence for God really manifest itself in our lives? Well, let me tell you something. I fear the discipline of God. And so should you. I do not fear the wrath or ultimate judgment of God because Christ took that on my behalf. But again, I do fear God's discipline. Just like I feared the discipline of my dad. I did not want to get spanked, so I behaved, and I knew my dad loved me without the slightest doubt. I knew he wouldn't cause lasting harm. I knew that his love was the reason for my discipline. It was out of love. I knew that. He made sure I knew that, but I was still afraid of it because it stung, both physically and emotionally. As God's child, I feel the same way. I don't want his discipline. I'd rather have his blessing. This is the kind of fear that's appropriate for the remnant. Going back to last week, this is part of why I am faithful to tithe. This is part of why I'm working on making sure I do not speak against God. The Bible says God disciplines those whom He loves. Newsflash, His discipline hurts, even though it is for love. And since I would rather avoid that pain, I try to behave. It's just amazing how this works. Maybe your mom and dad was abusive. If that's true, I'm so sorry. Maybe they were more wrathful than disciplinary. If that is the case, you will have a harder time understanding God's love for you. And that's something you need to spend a lot of time working through. But let me tell you what I see going on at this point in history more than anything. Kids today are being ruined by parents who do not teach them a healthy fear of authority. I could talk about this issue all day. People who do not have a healthy fear of earthly authority typically do not have a healthy fear of God. And that leads to a society bound for hell. One other thing I will say about this. 
the best way to develop a healthy fear of God is to read the Bible. Especially if you do not leave out the Old Testament in your reading. You will not develop a remnant fear of God in any way other than getting to know Him better through His Word. Most Christians, Christian books will not lead you to a healthy fear of God. Most Christian music is not going to major on the kinds of things that lead to fearing God as we should. But if, we will simply, if you'll simply read your Bible daily, the whole Bible, I believe you'll begin to fear God in the right way. Hopefully my preaching also helps or other tools like that. Know this, the remnant fears God. Let's look at the next remnant reality from our text, from verse 17. Number four, the remnant belongs to God. Malachi starts quoting God again here. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. When God owns you, it's a beautiful thing. Because, friend, God takes care of that which he owns. This is a side of love that we've forgotten. Read poetry from 50 years ago, and you'll see this important ownership aspect of love. But now we're so independent that we don't like to think of someone owning us. Some might even associate this with slavery. Or others think of the last scene in Return of the Jedi where the Sith Lord says to Luke Skywalker, You, like your father, are now mine. Or, of course, I would be remiss in not mentioning Gollum's precious ring. My own. My precious. So, yeah, there's an evil way to own things. Sure. But even some of those little Valentine hearts still say things like forever mine, right? And we sing songs where we say things like I am yours and you are mine to God, so hopefully this isn't utterly foreign to all of you, that there is a loving kind of ownership that is akin to the idea of cherishing a treasure. And listen, when it's God owning you, the depth of meaning is profound. Let me explain something. You want to be owned by God. Trust me, you don't want to not be owned by God because everything that is not owned by God is headed for the cosmic garbage dump eventually. God throws out that which he does not own. I'm not making that up. This is the very meaning behind the word Armageddon. It's really two words that formed that word, Armageddon. It's a place. It's a dump where stuff burns forever. It's about a cosmic garbage dump. Look it up. It's what the word means. Armageddon is the time and the place where God takes out the trash. But conversely, that which God owns, He cherishes, and He takes care of it, even hovering over it with jealousy, according to Scripture, passionately defending it from those who would steal it away. Listen, God keeps His belongings under His watch care 24-7, 365, and forever and ever. Amen. When the Lord says, on the day that I prepare my own possession, He's referring to the day when He will gather up His remnant and leave everyone and everything else behind. He will absolutely rescue those who are His. 
but those who are not His will be discarded. Why? Simply because they are not His. By grace through faith in Christ, the Savior, we're now God's special possession, and He will save us, just like my grandma used to save Cool Whip containers. I think she liked the oldest ones best. I've had stuff stored in this for 25 years. That's great, Grams. <laughs> the remnant is not thrown out because of ownership. The remnant remains. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this word, possession. Other translations add the word special or treasured to help describe this possession, this remnant of people who are God's. And those adjectives are very appropriate to the intended meaning. We are special and treasured possessions as the remnant. In other places, this word is used is in 1 Chronicles 29.3, where we're told that David had 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of silver, but they also had something else that made all of that seem like junk to him. David had something like a safe deposit box or a chest filled with personal treasures that were deeply sentimental and special to him. These were his treasured possessions, which he treasured far beyond all other treasures. This word used to describe David's special chest of treasures is the same word used in Malachi to describe how God possesses his remnant. It's kind of like this, if God had to leave his house because of a fire, this little chest of treasures would be the only thing he would grab while everything else would be left to burn. Actually, that's exactly what this is like. And this remnant of treasures, possibly including you, is just that special to God. The remnant belongs to God. But how do you become part of this remnant? Well, how did this small group of people mentioned in Malachi become his? They became his by faith. That's what the fear of God and the esteem of his name boils down to, faith. There were still a few who actually believed God and who believed he would do what he said he would do. Unlike the majority, even unlike the majority of those who claimed to still believe, these folks really believed God and they lived like they believed it. They still served God while others kind of bailed on the whole church thing. This is how they became to be considered his remnant. They were faithful to the faithful one. Today, we've become his remnant in the same way, only with more information. Today, we know that Christ is the culmination of who God is and who God said he was and what God said he was going to do. The promise of the Savior from the beginning, from Genesis 3 even. Jesus is God's salvation. We become his treasured possession by putting our trust and who He is, and what He did on the cross. In so doing, we become His family, His people, His brothers and sisters, His very own. Those who belong to Christ belong to God. We are the remnant, those who still believe, and who prove it by how we live. Closely related, number five, the remnant is spared by God. Look at the last part of verse 17. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. This further defines what it means to belong to God. Ownership means we become his children. My children are mine. You know what I mean? They're my children. They're not anybody else's children. They are my children. I, I take that kind of ownership over my children. 
It makes a difference, a big difference. When your son or daughter, when you are a son or daughter of the God of the universe, you get special treatment. Wouldn't that make sense? See, it isn't because of what we do, but because of whose we are. God does not make these promises of salvation to his remnant because they behave well enough, but because they are his sons and daughters. Salvation comes to us through our identity as believers, not by our works. And yet, notice even here it says that God's sons will serve him. This means the relationship will be fleshed out in service. Either way, it's clear that this is a permanent relationship. We do not become sons and then not sons and then sons again. We're not gods and then not gods. He doesn't let go. Our identity before God and even our spiritual nature radically change at the point of sonship. We're no longer his enemies destined for wrath, but now we are his sons and daughters destined for peace. God will spare us as a man spares his own children. Number six, the remnant is distinguished from others. Look at the first part of verse 18. Malachi writes of God, so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Make no mistake, God will eventually make this very judgment, even as it relates to you. He will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. But again, how is righteousness before God gained by any human being? The Bible says, He made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In who? In Christ. And from Romans 3, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, they knew about it. They talked about it. Even the righteousness of God, how does it come? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Just in case you hadn't got it yet, for all those who believe. Righteousness of God is for whom? For all those who believe. Scripture tells us that Abraham and those in the Old Testament were made righteous in the same way, by belief, by faith. So when our text says, you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, we need to understand that both in the immediate context and the whole of Scripture would remind us that righteousness is not earned, but is granted by grace from God as we respond to Him in faith which can also be thought of as reverence or fear. By the way, in this church, we teach that faith is a choice and is available to whosoever believes. Any theology that views faith as something God arbitrarily chooses to force on a few is patently unfaithful to the biblical witness. The story of Scripture is a story of a few responding to God by choosing to put their trust in Him. Listen, God will not force you to fear Him, and He will not force you into His remnant. Now, before anyone tries to tell me there's nobody out there saying this, or that I'm setting up an argument against a straw man, let me just tell you that you're wrong. They are saying this. Who is saying it? Well, more than anything, many young and half-educated Christians are saying it, sometimes because they have misunderstood what some pastor on the internet was trying to say. Beyond that, some of the most famous preachers out there need to be more careful 
and perhaps less one-sided in their theology. Don't add to my words, I'll say it again. Any theology that views faith as something God arbitrarily chooses to force on a few is patently unfaithful to the biblical witness. For the record, I don't think anyone here believes that. Some are closer, closer to it than others, but I don't think anyone here believes that. But this idea of what comes across as forced faith is being communicated out there, trust me, and it's a big problem. Listen, God does not zap people with salvation against their own will. Regardless, understand that a distinction will be made by God between the righteous and the wicked. And there's no gray area. Jesus talked about the sheep and the goats. The sheep who were known by him would enter paradise, and the goats whom he did not know would enter eternal damnation. God will distinguish between his remnant and everyone else. Big question, will you be distinguished as one of those declared righteous by God, or will you instead be declared wicked because of your lack of faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ? God will distinguish between those who are in the remnant and those who are not. This takes us to the last remnant reality outlined in our text. The remnant serves God. Let's remember all of verse 18. Malachi writes, So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. The remnant serves God. This is one of those places in Scripture where we have to make sure that we do not get the cart before the horse. The righteous will serve God, but that does not mean that by serving God, they become righteous. As explained, we're made righteous by grace through faith in Christ. However, the Bible is also clear that those who have been made righteous will prove it by their behavior, or as it's worded in our text, by their service. Make no mistake, there's no such thing as a ticket to heaven that doesn't really impact the way you live in this life. Those who are part of the remnant serve God. If you do not serve God, you prove that you're not actually part of the remnant. Jesus said those who do not do God's will, like by helping the least of these, will be cast into darkness. Why? Because they did not do God's will? Not exactly. That's simply the proof that they never knew Jesus by faith, and therefore were still considered wicked by God rather than righteous. That's why Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us that we're saved for the very purpose of doing good works, that is, serving God in ways that He's already planned beforehand. For me, that's planting churches, among other things. What is it for you? How do you serve God? To serve the Lord is to live for Him, to wait on Him, to do everything for His glory, and with a desire to accomplish His will on earth. Our text is simply telling us that those who are defined as God's servants actually serve Him. The remnant serves God. Sometimes this means taking care of little children during our worship gathering. Sometimes it means doing that for a long time because the pastor preaches a long time. Sometimes it means feeding the hungry. Sometimes it means sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with a neighbor. Sometimes serving God means a whole host of things. But know this, serving God means something real. 
And to be clear, this text means serving God is the definition of your life. Jesus didn't call for half-hearted disciples. We're not talking about just making sure you do something good every now and then. When God calls for servants, He means serving Him becomes who you are. And by the way, you have the ability to be His servant because you have been made righteous by grace through faith in Christ. We're given verses like this as checkpoints for our lives to make sure we actually are in the remnant because it's pretty important. The remnant will be distinguished by the fact that they're servants of God. Is that how you would define yourself? Is that how others would define you? More importantly, is that how God would define you? Does the Lord know that He can count on you as His servant? Let me close by asking once more, are you the remnant? If you're not sure, it's likely that you're not. I've said a lot of things, but the bottom line is that you can come to Christ today and become part of His remnant. If you are willing, He will receive you. He will not turn you away. He is calling. Will you answer? Would, we, would you pray with me? If God is moving in your heart and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you somehow and you just know that today is a day that you just you want to just like have no more doubt remember he said return to me and I will return to you the grace is already there it's already been done your sins are paid for it's a gift a free gift I personally believe God is offering it to everyone. He's offering it to you today. Will you receive it? Do you even believe it's real? Do you believe Jesus died on a cross for your sins, that He rose again on the third day to show that He had power to grant us eternal life like He promised? You know, you have to believe that, yes. That's just head knowledge, though. James said even the demons know that. So if you believe that, that's a start. But have you received this gift by faith? Have you put all your chips in on Christ? Have you put the parachute on and jumped out of the plane? Have you decided? Have you made a commitment? Have you received the gift from God that you know is going to mean change? Yeah, it's going to mean turning away from some things. He's not going to leave you alone. You've got to come with kind of a repentant heart. You've got to come with repentant faith. I call it. Faith that says, I know this is going to change me, but I'm in. I'm ready. Take my life. I surrender. That's the kind of faith it takes to be saved. Maybe today is the day. Just tell God. It's not magic words. Just tell Him. And for anyone who's made that decision today or, or recently, there is a next step. There is a next step. It's not a mystery. We, we don't have to, you know, maybe we'll have a class and, and, and go, go over it. It's really, really simple. You need to be baptized. That is so clear in Scripture. They believed and they were baptized every single time we read about someone coming to Christ in Scripture. 
after the resurrection. Would you do that? Would you consider doing that? Will you take your stand with Jesus? That's what that means. Let us know. I'll talk with you about it. Maybe you just have more questions. I'll talk with you. Use the communication card or email me, whatever. Every single person in this room has the opportunity today to either kind of recommit to the remnant or to join the remnant. And only you know who you are. I pray you make a decision. Respond to the preaching of God's word. It's not powerful because of me. It's only powerful because the Holy Spirit is here. And if you're moved, it's because of him. Will you respond to him or will you just kind of ignore him? I hope you'll respond. Thank you for how you work in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.